This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 16th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Kentucky's new governor, Andy Bashir, restored the voting rights of more than 140,000 former felons in Kentucky. Guy Hamilton Smith is one of those people. We spoke earlier this month about voting rights and Kentucky's own recent history with clemency. Andy Bashir is the new governor of Kentucky. He was sworn in in December. Uh, and one of his first acts as governor was to restore voting rights to 140,000 people who had served their sentences. You were one of them. Um, how does that feel? Uh, you know, it's funny because I spent so long like disenchanted and disenfranchised about politics that I didn't think it would actually matter. Uh, that much to me when it, you know, if I ever got my rights to vote back. Um, but it was actually kind of emotional for me um, to know that, you know, I have, again, um, a voice. You know, I haven't voted since, you know, since I was 18. So I'm 36 now. So it's been a good chunk of my life that I haven't been, um, you know, a member of the, you know, a member of the franchise. What were you convicted of? Well, um, so in my teenage years, I had a really bad problem with internet pornography. And I downloaded essentially everything that I came across. Some of those images were illegal. And um, my girlfriend at the time, she found them and went to the police. And, um, you know, I was, I cooperated. And uh, I was eventually convicted, uh, pled guilty to, um, you know, possession of, uh, you know, possession of child pornography. And, um, you know, from that point, I wasn't, I was very fortunate in a lot of respects because that allowed me to get honest, um, and get treatment. And it also gave me an interest in law because prior to that point, I had actually been in grad school for clinical psychology. Um, and that, you know, I withdrew from, you know, this was back in 2006, um, and I ended up having to withdraw from from school. But then, going through the legal process, I kind of got interested in law, and I asked my lawyer, "Can you go to law school with a felony conviction?" So then I went to law school and kind of started on this whole whole journey of, um, I mean, it's a long story, but um, you know, being involved in various aspects of the criminal system, working in um, indigent federal defense, um, and now the work that I do now too. So, and so, uh, I guess why do, in your view, you, you mentioned that it was somewhat emotional for you to, to have your voting rights restored. I can hear the, uh, libertarian listening to this saying, mm -hmm. so what voting's not important. <laughs> it's doesn't, doesn't change the outcomes of elections, but there, it is important for people to, uh, have a stake yeah. uh, or, uh, it, you know, however you want to characterize it, voting is an expression of a, of a voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but it goes, it's part and parcel with a much larger participation in society. Yeah. No, now, I would say the, 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 you know, the ability to participate meaningfully in the economy mm -hmm. is uh, way more important than the ability to vote. But uh, nonetheless, it is, it is something. Yeah. I, I think it's a, I think it's a marker, you know, it's, it's a, it's sort of a, uh, a signal, 
you know, that um, because, you know, I've done work in voting rights um, issues for for a while now, because, I mean, I, uh, I'll back up. Well, I'll just say this, like people would always ask me, like, why does it matter? Like a lot of people don't vote, like a lot of people who have the ability to vote um, choose not to exercise it. And I think there is also a lot of cynicism about, like you were saying, about the voting process. Um, but I think that having the ability to vote matters in ways that um, the act of voting uh, doesn't matter because it's sort of you're being told that when you don't have the right to vote, you're being told that you, do, you don't have a voice, not that you are choosing not to exercise it or not that you think that exercising it would be um, meaningless but that you simply don't have one. So uh, with respect to this restoration of, of voting rights, uh, where does that place Andy Bashir in terms of, you know, uh, engaging in this kind of policy change uh, in one fell swoop? Like Kentucky, it's not automatic. It's, it's, right. a, it's a piece, it's done on a piecemeal basis. It's by executive order. Uh, so where does that, where does that place him? Where does that place Kentucky in terms of restoring voting rights? In terms of comparing it to the rest of the nation? Well, Kentucky, I mean, that basically brings Kentucky in line, I mean, more or less with most of the rest of the country. Um, Kentucky was one of, I think only three states that continue to disenfranchise people after they have served their sentence. I think now, um, I think it's Kentucky, Virginia, and Florida. Although Florida passed Amendment 4, but Florida also had carve-outs for people who are convicted of sex offenses or murder. Um, Bashir's executive order also had certain carve-outs um, for people who are convicted of violent offenses. And now I believe I believe it's Iowa that is the only other state that can, or Iowa and Virginia, but Virginia has a pretty much an automatic, um, the governor has instituted a automatic executive order process where people's rights are restored more or less automatically. Uh, I think Iowa is pretty much the only holdout at this point. Um, and, uh, but, but what would be required to actually change the process in Kentucky is a constitutional amendment because another governor could come in and could rescind um, Bashir's executive order. And then we just have the process that was in place prior to uh, Bashir's executive order, which for anyone who doesn't know, I, I went through that process maybe half a dozen times which was um, you apply for restoration of your civil rights. And I did that, over, like I haven't been, um, I finished my sentence in 2010. And over the course of about the last 10 years, um, I never got an answer to those applications that I would send in. I got letters of reference. I you know, wrote essays. I even published research when I was in law school um, about voting rights. And I even sent in uh, a copy of that article uh, when it came out and I just, I never got an answer. So it's inscrutable. It's an inscrutable process for people to navigate. All right. So just before Andy Bashir became governor and, uh, did this sort of mass action with respect to civil rights, mm -hmm. uh, his predecessor, Matt Bevan, mm -hmm. uh, from the other party, he was a Republican, uh, undertook hundreds, I believe more than 400, uh, pardons in his sort of lame duck period uh, as governor, a lot of those attracted uh, quite a bit of negative attention. Mm -hmm. uh, there were uh, claims that uh, either these pardons were purchased or at least they were a favor done to 
done on behalf of political supporters of the governor. Uh, in general, I mean, this was a lot of pardons at once. Right. Uh, and it, it strikes me that this is a, a heartfelt issue for Matt Bevin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the 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 uh, restoration of of rights or ending sentences for people who uh, have either redeemed themselves or uh, would like to participate meaningfully in the economy, have learned something from their incarceration, or right. probably or were wrongly convicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. In evaluating how people have responded to uh, these hundreds of pardons, I mean, just give me your sense of of how that went down. Well, I mean, I think it's a really it's a really nuanced issue. You know, I mean, I think that we live in a country and also in a state in Kentucky where you know we have a real problem with punishment, um, and one of the ways that we can meaningfully address our you know problems with punishment in this country is through clemency and so clemency i think is something that's that's um good and not used nearly enough and so i think generally speaking you know bevin's pardons like the coverage on it i understand that there are a lot of people who are outraged and i find it um i don't know it's dispiriting that that is the that is the reaction that we become more outraged over the potential that someone who is undeserving or who we deem to be undeserving receives a pardon than for any at the same time as the coverage over Bevin's pardons was going down. The Kentucky Innocence Project announced that they exonerated someone from Kentucky prisons who'd served, I think, 40 something years for a crime that he didn't commit. And there is no outrage about that. There's no outrage about, um, you know, people who are mistreated in our prisons. There's no outrage about, um, you know, people who are the subject of, um, you know, police violence. Um, there, but there's outrage for people who are receiving pardons who may or may not be uh, unworthy. Um, and and as to the specific cases that have, you know, the the handful of pardons that have you know, attracted, attracted attention. Um, you know, I don't know if they were, you know, bought or purchased, but I will say that, you know, only to the extent that our political processes are corrupt to to begin with, can the pardon process also be corrupt. Right. See the, uh, the, Pardons and commutations, clemency broadly, a restoration of rights. Uh, I think most people listening to this would say that's a focus on essentially the wrong end mm-hmm. of the criminal justice system, which is well, a lot of these people shouldn't have have shouldn't have felony convictions to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I mean, and that's why I say that clemency is one way that we have of trying to ameliorate this, um, I mean, this real social problem that we are faced with now in, you know, in 2020 of trying to figure out how we, I mean, the toothpaste is out of the tube. You know, we've spent the last three, four, five decades um, hammering on, you know, we need to punish people. We need to put them in prison for longer. And now that's what we have. And now we have to figure out how to clean it up. So clemency is one way of doing that. Um, but yeah, on the other end, like focusing on the front end of the criminal system, 
like making, you know, trying to tamp down on um, making certain things not crimes, uh, and also reducing sentences, getting away with getting away from mandatory minimum sentencing, and also there are a number of laws around the country now that are um, authorizing, you know, second look at, you know, second looks at extreme sentences, especially for people who were convicted of their crime, convicted of crimes when they were juveniles or um, in their early twenties. And so I think all those are, you know, valuable tools, but clemency is certainly one of them. And, um, and that's, but it's also interesting, the, um, you know, the, the coverage and the response to Bevan's pardons, I think gives a kind of window into just how, how fraught and difficult it is to navigate this area of law and policy. There are, uh, when governors leave office, when presidents leave office, there are uh, often a flurry of, of last minute uh, pardons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty strong evidence that those things, no matter uh, how deserving people might be of receiving those pardons, are controversial. Yeah. And uh, when you do that on your way out of office, you're basically admitting, I could not spend I could not spare the political capital uh, while I was actually serving in full capacity mm-hmm. as a governor or president. I, I mean, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, I would absolutely love to see or have be normalized a process whereby governors feel empowered to give pardons consistently throughout their term as because I mean, if people if, if people are deserving of a pardon and they're deserving of a pardon, on day one of your administration, odds are pretty good that they're, I mean, if they're, excuse me, if they're deserving on the last day of your administration, odds are pretty good they were deserving on the first day of your administration too. And so making them wait for four years serves no purpose other than to, you know, cover your own ass. Um, And I think that there are some governors who are starting to move in that direction. Um, And I also know that Bevan did give some pardons throughout throughout his administration uh, that were you know that were that were I, I think somewhat risky, but he also gave them during his administration. So I think that, like you said, I, I think that to you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, here in Kentucky, Bevan was very unpop, very unpopular governor, uniquely unpopular, uniquely unpopular, and I think for many many good reasons. Um, but I also I, I also think that there is um, some aspect of his beliefs that, that I mean that these came from a place where he genu- he genuinely. Um, believed in what he was doing with respect to trying to open up the clemency power. Guy Hamilton-Smith is a legal fellow at the Sex Offense Litigation and Policy Resource Center at the Mitchell Hamline School of Law. We spoke earlier this month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.